Welcome and happy Friday. This is December 9th, 2016, and this is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I'm here with Mark Elwood, who's a contributing editor to the podcast and to our site, and uh, Dan Dunn, who is the author of American Wino, and he's here by Skype. So if you notice any audio strangeness, that's why. And in a few minutes, you're going to hear another guest, which is uh, a guy named Cameron McKenzie, who is the founder of Four Pillars Gin in Australia. And Mark is going to be speaking with him about his experience and his uh, company and Australia generally. The topic of the week this week is traveling for booze. So, um, And it's also all men, I realize. It's all that dudes. It's just, it's just all dudes, yeah. which is a little bit weird. Yeah, we should, have, we, should, we should have fixed that. So apologies in advance. It is all men's voices. Yeah, which is weird because we work in an all-women's office, mm-hmm. except us. So with that, let's go ahead and, and have you take it away, Mark, with your conversation with Cameron. Hello, Cam. Uh, morning, Mark. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, mate. Very well indeed. I'm so, actually distilling at the moment. So oh. if any alarms and things go off and I run off screaming, don't be alarmed. I'll call you back. Uh, so my name is Cameron McKenzie. I'm the distiller at Four Pillars Distillery in the Yarra Valley, which is about one hour out of Melbourne. We're a gin distillery. When people come and visit us, they see gin in various different styles, but they're not going to see a whiskey, a rum, a rye or, or a vodka. We are a designated gin distillery. We did start on a crowdsourcing campaign, and I think we totally underestimated the interest, one, in premium gin, but two, in craft Australian distilling. But I thought Australians only drank beer. What do you mean they they drink gin? You know, it does take a lot of beer to make good gin, I will tell you that. Look, we have a climate that's conducive to premium drinks, whether it is great beer, great gin, or great wine. You know, Australia, when we started this project, we probably talked more about what we didn't want to make versus what we did want to make. And as much as I love London dry gin, I didn't feel the world needed another one. We felt we could do a modern Australian gin. I didn't want to be Crocodile Dundee in a bottle. One of the most compelling things about the opportunity for Australian gin was the use of some of these really incredible native Australian botanicals. One of them is called lemon myrtle. The other one was the leaf of the Tasmanian mountain pepper. I often travel with samples of these different leaves to show people that not everything in Australia is going to sting you, bite you or eat you. We've actually got a really compelling native botanical story to tell. (laughs) Tell me the story of the, the farthest someone has come to visit you at the distillery, the kind of pilgrimage that cocktail lovers have made to you. We had a guy here about two weeks ago from Norway. He spent about three hours at the distillery just tasting gin, chatting about what we do, about distillation, looking at botanicals. Uh, He stayed the night out here in Healesville in our town and then he came back the next morning for breakfast and had had a red snapper and some marmalade on toast. What's the craziest thing someone's done at the distillery? When a visitor's come, have they tried to get you to make a gin specially for them? We do often do some collaborations with bartenders, just small batch gins. And I I think the one that we're about to release with James Irvine, my brief to him was to forage some ingredients, but he basically stole most of the ingredients from gardens around his house uh, and from the kitchen at the Baxter Inn. (laughs) We made, you know, we made a gin using Australian grown wasabi, um, pig face, which is a really interesting native Australian succulent, sea blight, which is another really interesting one. He looked at it from a bartender's point of view and he had his flavours nailed down really, really well. 
and I'm sure that gin's going to make a really great dirty martini. Talk to me about how the trend for craft spirits has drawn people to Australia. Does that increase tourism? Do you think that's an extra layer of, I, I'm going to fly to Sydney and Melbourne and drink the best drinks in the world? There are these incredible small cocktail bars that are adding so much theatre and colour and vibrancy to the bar scene. The drinks offering is premium. I think people are coming out for the experience of seeing a lot more Australian spirits. I think our drinks tend to have a little bit more of a citrus element to them. In Melbourne, you would start with a martini at the Gin Palace. Uh, the Gin Palace is a Melbourne institution. It's been there for 19 years. I think they've got around 300 gins, of which probably 60 are Australian, which is, is incredible. I'd go to Black Pearl, which is, is arguably one of the great cocktail bars of the world. But then I'd, I'd actually look at some of the restaurants too that are making great drinks. Go down to Circa and, you know, look at some of our produce. Guys, smaller places like Pope Joan that it's the last piece of the puzzle for me in Australia is watching restaurants now create great bars. In Sydney, Baxter Inn, Big Poppers, you know, or there's, take your pick, there's another O to V up there. There's, there's some amazing bars. Tell me, how do you think the explosion of cocktail culture worldwide has impacted travel? How do they intersect? Oh, I think it's pretty rare to see uh, distilleries that are not great experiences. When you walk into a distillery, you know, certainly ours is full of shiny, beautiful copper distilling equipment. I'm not, this is a broad generalisation, but I, I do think most distilleries are in really beautiful parts of the world that are based in regional areas. From a tourism point of view, you're not just going to be walking into a cellar door or, or a little bar somewhere. You're walking into an experience, and that experience often extends well beyond the venue itself or the distillery itself. It extends into the local town or into the local community and into the local bar scene. Um, now, one last question. Should you travel for booze? Oh, unquestionably, you should travel for booze because when you travel for booze, you will taste amazing things, meet incredible people, and you will find that if you do travel for booze, it just naturally extends towards produce, other things, natural beauty, country areas and communities. So travelling for booze might be the focal point, but there is so much more that you'll be introduced to when you do that. So first of all, uh, it's worth pointing out that we actually brought back the cocktail for this particular episode because it seemed crazy not to have a cocktail. I'm trying to make my ice sound. Like <laughs> the, the ice clinking. And we're actually drinking Cam's gin, his Four Pillars Navy Strength gin that they have. And it's, it, I think he did a good job of describing it, Mark. I don't know what you think. Like It, it, it does have a lot of uh, sort of citrusy notes to it. I don't know any of the plants or the <laughs> botanicals he was describing, but they sound really cool. But I'm curious for you guys, this notion of traveling to drink or traveling for beverages, like alcoholic beverages particularly, maybe even more recently, the craft beer scene has really become spread outside of the small niche markets in which it sort of spent 20, 25 years mm -hmm. kind of maturing and has become a thing where you can hardly throw a rock at a travel destination now where there's not a craft beer scene, you know, going on. But I'm also, and we are inside the bubble, like, what is your perception of how widespread this is? Well, first off, don't throw rocks at the craft distillers. They hate it. <laughs> Very upsetting to them. You know, I feel like I've been traveling for booze for way too long. But uh, back in the day when, when I first started writing about drinking, there were probably about 
five or six of us doing it. You know, the internet was really in its nascent stages. So the idea of of either booze uh, with you know liquor tourism certainly was a uh, was not a reality back then. You know, um, I'd go to distilleries in Scotland or in Kentucky or go down to, uh, to Mexico, and you didn't see the sorts of visitor centers and places that you're the seeing slick now. The corporations, you mean? The sort of like welcome to our the world of McAllen, the world of Balboa. Yeah, the, the shit that wine, the, the wine business has been in that for decades and decades and decades, right? Well, you know what's interesting about the uh, here comes the shameless plug. My <laughs> latest book, American Wino, uh, you know, is about a journey that I took around the U.S. Uh, for three and a half months. Actually, two years ago, right now, I was wrapping up my trip, but I drove for 15,000 miles. And, you know, I didn't realize the extent to which wine tourism, you know, they make wine in every state in the United States. And I and I just was under the impression that once you got out of California, Washington and Oregon, it was going to be a guy named Cletus in a uh, in an old shack yeah. uh, giving you wine in a tin cup. And but, but is that, that new? Is that new or has that been going on for well, a long time? Certainly, certainly, you know, in places like, you know, Wyoming and Montana, Louisiana and some of the places that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, it's all sort of happening in the last 10 years. Now, areas uh, such as Virginia and Colorado and Texas especially – They've had wineries there for a long time, but the idea of wine tourism has exploded, I think, in the last 10 years as the popularity of wine, drinking in general, you know, has exploded. But for instance, uh, the hill country of Texas, and a lot, a lot of people know this, but the hill country of Texas, just south of, of Austin, Texas, is the second leading wine tourism area in the United States beyond wow. Northern yeah, California. That's totally surprising. That's shocking to me. In terms of volume. Now, how many people have been there that don't live in Texas? I don't know. Uh, Texas is a, sort of a country in and of itself, and it is insanely packed down there. I've uh, I've made friends with a lot of the winemakers down there, winery owners. There's a place, for instance, in High Texas called William and Chris, and they said on a, any given Saturday afternoon in the spring, you know, there's an hour long wait. There's just a wait, so you have eight. to plan ahead. You can't just drop. You, oh, I think, yeah. I yeah. think we picture, and this is what's interesting. I think that's the sign that booze tourism is taking off, mm -hmm. that you can no longer just rock up and say, hey, I'm here to try. You have to make a reservation yeah. in it's, Texas. Yeah. It's like in Napa Valley 10 years ago, that would make sense. But in Texas, that that is that was unimaginable, I think, 10 years ago. But you see, I think this is very much, if I think of, I mean, you know, I met Dan when we were in Scotland tasting whiskeys. And to me, Whiskey tourism is the beginning of all of this, that people would have made pilgrimages to Kentucky and Scotland. Yeah. But even then, there weren't always visitor centers, were there? I mean, it, like it was... No, no, I don't think so. I think Kentucky picked up on this probably... Again, I think you're right. Like whiskey, this is something that probably has deeper roots there than it does in gin, for example, than in what Cam is doing. But but I still think that um, it's the level of sophistication has changed in the last decade. I think that the, the level of sophistication that the distillers, and also like they've suddenly become marketers. It's like everything else. Now those guys are marketers as well as distillers. But I think the other thing that has happened in that same period of time is, and prior to the sort of cocktail culture is, food tourism exploded, right? Yeah, and all so of a sudden you sort of had this notion of 
the locavore notion being a portable thing where, where every location can have its own food culture, its own variations on classics that depend on those kind of local ingredients and local traditions, I think is something that sort of happened in food and then it eventually migrated over to spirits and to cocktails. Well, Dan, where's the craziest place you've traveled to see booze? You know, where's the like most unlikely destination you've been drawn to to drink that you can tell us about? Oh, professionally, you mean? (laughs) Whatever, Uh, you know. (laughs) Because I've gone to some really strange places to drink, but I never wrote about it. Um, Wow. You know, that's a a good one. You know, I've been, fortunately, I've been all over the world uh, drinking. But I I would say, honestly, on the wine trip that I took, that was the most surprising thing. There were, you know, when I went to North Georgia, for instance, you know, I didn't, expect to find what I found there, which was a cluster of really beautiful, it's a gorgeous area of the world, and really beautiful, high-tech, big, well-run operations. You know, so if people wanted to take a trip there, you know, you could set up shop in Atlanta, and they go an hour and a half north, and you could spend three, four days up there and still not hit half the places that are With up. visitor centers, I mean, were they teed up for visitors, or were you kind of strolling up and knocking on the door of this sort of gleaming winery? Yeah, great question. Oh, it's what you see in Napa and Sonoma, I mean, uh, on a smaller scale in some places. Certainly, so if, give you an example, for a place like Virginia, as good a place to visit wine tourism-wise, is the wine as good as what? No, I don't think so. It's not. Uh, let's say it's not, but it's good. There are some one of the best wines I had on the whole trip was in Virginia called RDV, mm-hmm. a Bordeaux blend. But there's great wine in Virginia, but there are fantastic places to go. See, this Barbara- is what I think this is interesting because I think Cameron at Four Pillars made a really interesting point, which is an awful lot of the booze destinations are kind of appealing places to go anyway. That's true. So you're like, I want to go to the Highlands of Scotland. Oh, and there's a distillery. It's almost like the booze is a bonus and it's a reason to go. But exactly, you go to this beautiful parts of Virginia and you're like, sure, the wine is, is, is nice enough, but I don't care that it's not a grand cru. I care that like it's a cute thing to do in a cute place. Well, and you know, the other thing too about wine especially, but always it's experiential. So I can tell you this, when I was in Texas or when I was in Michigan and I was drinking those wine, if I'm in this idyllic, location drinking wine i'm thinking god damn this is some really good wine right now i've since had those wines sent out to me in california and i'll put that up against a screaming eagle or something and i'm gonna go yeah maybe it's not as good why do i remember it being so much better oh totally exactly there's a a science about this yeah well i don't i I, i'm not gonna pretend to be a scientist i'll let you do that but uh but i will say that the first time that i ever had rosé real rosé like the provencal kind of thing was in yer in france on the sort of piazza where everybody was kind of partying and hanging out. And it was unbelievably magical. Like, it was great. Mm-hmm. I drank a lot of it, and that was great. And also just, like, the flavor was so perfect in the place. It seemed so of the place. And I have that memory, and I've never been able to reproduce that, no matter how good 
a rosé, and I've had some great rosés, but I've never been able to reproduce that same kind of combination of things, of the unification of the place and the beverage that comes from that place. So how much of that do you think is real, and how much of that, like, there's this saying, if it grows together, it goes together in terms of food, right? And and we have this notion of terroir with wine. How much of that do you think is psychological, and how much of that is really physiological, or like scientific? But I think there is, thanks, that's, and, and Brad back just pointed science. at me, back to the science. <laughs> I don't know if anyone listening can improve on this, but I believe I've read about the sense that there is some psychological impact to where you are. Because often we're drinking these tipples on vacation or we're having a good time. We're in a good mood, so they taste better. Mm. So that's another reason that you want to go to places and try them, because you're almost trying them at their best. That's that magic extra ingredient that you just won't get at home. And I think there is some science, I can't remember, It's there is a way in which our brains are our physiology is impacted, and I hope someone listening can a scientist. Yes, can tell me about this. <laughs> well, I would I would equate it to uh, <laughs> we can say anything, right? I would equate it to watching porn versus actually having sex. Okay, all right. You know, it's just something about New territory being, for the podcast. <laughs> so there we go. A little yeah. too racy, uh, but you know, here's the thing: if you go to the Glenlivet and you meet the people who are making the product, you watch the craft that goes into making that product, you follow it from the grain, through distillation, to bodily, and then you finally sit down after seeing this and meeting the people and seeing how much is invested in the thing that you're about to put in your mouth, I can assure you that it's going to taste better than it will if you're sitting in your local bar at home drinking it. Not that it's not going to taste good there, but when you see it and feel it and touch it and understand what went into making it, it it's a, it's a, a transcend. It's, it's a, the romance, uh, isn't it? It's the it romance, is it? Somehow it sort absolutely. of teases it, and it you really are. I feel like I'm just trying to think of a sexual metaphor. Like it teases it. It you know how do we how do we riff on? How that? far can we take it? <laughs> just keep going. <laughs> no, but but I remember but I remember going. One of my favorite trips I've ever taken was to drive the Prosecco Road in Italy, and I spent a lot of my childhood in Italy. But I had never heard of this, and I was sent what there. What is the Prosecco Road? So I wondered if you had Brad with your Italian wife. I have not. The Prosecco Road is an Italian government established in 1966 wine tourism route hmm. through the Veneto between Corneliano and Valdobbiadene. And it's it's windy and long because it's so windy and it's in the hills, but it's not enormous. It was still small-scale operators, so a lot of the time I would knock on the door, and it was a nice Italian who tried to feed me grappa as well as Prosecco. Mm -hmm. The bottles of wine, the Prosecco was two or three euros a bottle, because Prosecco's a cheap, good time drink. And it was in February I went, it was in the winter, and it was still this magical experience, like sitting with the guy who'd made it, as he kind of poured it out in a bit of broken English and a bit of Italian, kind of telling me the story. And boy, I've never had Prosecco taste as delicious. We often think of terroir in food and in wine as the food or the wine being expressive of the spirit of the place, the soil of the place, the sort of history and culture of a place, right? And the rituals around it, too. And that's why I kind of like there's there's yeah. the sort of chemistry of it. There's the grapes. There's the actual soil, which makes a huge difference. And I wonder how much of that do you guys think is hype and how much of it do you think is real? Well, everything's hype, isn't it? No. <laughs> um Boy, you know, I grew up uh, in blue collar in Philadelphia, so we didn't think a whole lot about it back then. It's only been in my professional life I've been fortunate enough to sort of get to understand it a little bit more 
you know, where these things come from and what that means to my taste buds and to my brain. I mean, really, ultimately, that's what we're talking about is how your your brain is reacting to to what it is you're you're ingesting. Okay, and and I think I think the actual taste of it is 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 half half of it. You know, uh, think you know think about the best bottles of wine you've ever had. It probably wasn't something that you were sitting around tasting for purposes of sort of breaking it down it's who you were with you were at you were at this amazing uh i was at the hollywood bowl and we saw this and we had this bottle and i'll I'll always go back to that bottle and that bottle is always going to taste great to you because you have a real emotional connection to it and that's i think an essential part of it is is the emotional connection be it to food or to drink and i don't think anything forges a stronger emotional bond with it than actually going to the place where it came from and seeing the landscape and and being able to place this thing every time i drink tequila or if i drink uh, casamigos tequila I remember drinking it with George Clooney, and oh. it means something. You dropped that name. That yeah, name he had to get the, He had to get it in. He had to drop it. It just, I, it just hey, bounced again. George oh, yeah. Clooney. Yeah. <laughs> he did just say George Clooney. Such a great guy. Well, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, oh, man. Speaking of that, I, it's funny when you guys called. I, you were. I was listening to the gin thing earlier, and I'm working on. Uh, there's a, uh, and I wonder. I wonder if this ties into it. You know, when you think about celebrities that have brands and that sort of thing. Does that matter to you? I wonder. So, if, for instance, I'm doing a piece. Uh, this Walton Goggins, who's uh, you know on Vice Principals, and they, he has a, a new company called Mulholland Distilling. And I was just drinking their gin because I'm writing a piece about it. And I was asking myself that question: Does it matter to me that Drew Barrymore is making this? wine or Walton Goggins is doing or George Clooney because Casamigos for instance has exploded like it's very popular now is that the issue or is it the taste oh I think it's I think it's a bit of both I think if it tasted horrible but a celebrity was selling it it would sort of taper away but the booze has got to be good yeah, didn't enough like Sammy Hagar have a tequila like, oh, Sammy does... I mean but that was a massive Cabo Wabo was a massive success yeah got he sold that for about 150 million dollars. Yeah. But was it because he was the, you know, he was Sammy Hagar or was the tequila really good? You would Well, know. here's the thing with Sammy. Sammy was one of the very first. I mean, the Cabo Wabo was really one of the first sort of craft tequilas that came out long before, you know, now you're seeing so but Sammy was an early adopter. I mean, he hung out down there in Cabo and loved tequila, started his own brand. It was a really good brand. Now there have been some terrible uh, celebrity brands. My boy Danny uh, Danny DeVito, love him to death, but that limoncello was was not good, you know. <laughs> and how do you make a bad limoncello? Anyway, that's another question. What I was going to say, we were talking about destinations, and I was thinking about this. Bordeaux just opened recently the Cité du Vin, which was the first dedicated wine experience that Bordeaux had because when you go to those vineyards it's almost like they don't really want you there because they're a bit busy making expensive wine but I thought it was so interesting that Bordeaux has decided sort of to double down on the tourism part and say let's make I haven't been to the site I've interviewed the designer I thought it was very French sounding because it really didn't sound like it emphasized the taste it was an awful lot of sort of poetry and you know performance art and you know motion capture history about blah 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 but I, it is fascinating that they clearly want to make a, a wine tourism destination out of Bordeaux because it's never quite come together because the vineyards don't 
that yeah. seduce people. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think this is the other the other tension that I see in this, and I'm interested in you guys' take on this as drinkers, is that there's a tension between, for me, anyway, I'll speak for myself, there's a tension between a sort of pure expression of whether it's a spirit or a wine or a beer, and that being an expression of a place or of a, of a local culture, and the sort of cocktail culture that has kind of spread around the world. And I think sometimes there's overlap between these two things, and I'm interested in, in, in how you guys view this as drinkers. Like, typically for me, I'm looking for the pure form. I'm intellectually intrigued by the sort of cocktail culture. And I look at guys like Ryan Chechewardna in London and the Death & Co. people, and I think like what they're doing is imaginative. It's super creative. There is a sense of like Death and Co is a New York. That is a place mm-hmm. that can only happen in New York. And I think Ryan is very conscientious about using local things and working with the restaurant in uh, in with at, at the restaurant. Yeah. In, in, and, and I think that there's a conscientiousness and a creativity that's. But I don't want to drink it. Or it's not that I don't want to drink it, but I would rather drink. I would rather go to the distillery. In, uh, but you see, but I don't. You see, I think you're missing something because when I went to Tokyo, for example, Tokyo cocktail culture is fascinating and very self-contained, like everything in Japan. And you know, going to a bar. Have you been to, to Tokyo? Have you been drinking in Tokyo, Dan? No, no. I, I was just, I was curious. Like the um, the bartenders are expected to free pour their drinks without wasting a single drop, so they don't use jiggers. They practice at night using water so they can visually gauge the time it takes to get the right measure. They create these works of art that are very Japanese, smaller drinks that Westerners tend to sort of glug twice and you're done um, because they're not big drinkers. They're more interested in the ritual of it. But it feels like a great expression of Japanese-ness, almost more than the distillery. I'm seeing, wow, this is the way they drink and how they interpret a martini. And to me... Going to a craft cocktail bar in a destination is often very revealing about how that place behaves. And I can totally see that. But I also feel like there's some degree to which that's similar to, in food culture, the difference between Lupa and 11 Madison Park, right? Like in in the sense that you've got these places that are sort of like earthy and, and expressive and have a lot of personality, but don't have a lot of fuss about it, and all are about flavor for the most part. Good technique that leads to good flavor. Mm-hmm. And then you have other places where the emphasis is on the art, and the flavor is part of the mix, but it's not necessarily the focal point. And that, to me, feels like the difference between these two things. Maybe I just I would I mean I make a list. I don't know about you, Dan, but I make a list before I go to a new city of the cocktail bars I want to check out. Do you? Okay. Oh yeah. I mean because I want to know. I ask my bartender friends and I say, where does anyone know? I'm going. You know, I'm going to Prague. What's happening there? And, you know, when Paris, I wrote a story years ago about the Parisian cocktail culture because Paris was a terrible place to get a cocktail. Your martini would be 25 euros. I remember being at the the fancy intercontinental in the center of Paris and paying 25 euros for a warm pint of vodka, which was apparently a martini. And, you know, for a drinking culture, it was so strange it hadn't embraced cocktails. And then suddenly the experimental cocktail gang sort of started making drinks and kind of brought back from America and localized everything. So a mojito was made with champagne because champagne is a go-to ingredient. Yeah, that's fascinating. You you always want to order like a mojito, a martini, and a Negroni and see how do they make it there. Yeah. And I think that's where it starts to get really interesting where you see people 
you know, kind of playing with those traditions in a way that's fun and interesting and, and that hopefully tastes great, right? Like, hopefully it's good to drink. A mojito with champagne is awesome. phenomenal. Yeah. Because and, it, it just, because I'm not a big fan of a mojito and it's just, it feels more grown up. And I do love to think of Europe, which I think even even a decade ago, finding a good cocktail in Europe, in, in Italy, in France, it was not easy. You know, and no, no. I mean, continentally, I think the British have always been. Well, like, London, yeah, yeah London. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the British. I mean, that's Scotland. not part of Europe anymore. <laughs> I mean, Scotland. I mean, Scotland is a big drinking cup. I mean, you know, but but cocktails. Yeah, I don't believe it. Scotland. <laughs> but, but cocktails. Cocktails yeah. or whiskey. Everything. They'll drink everything. In fact, it's you, when you get off the airplane, you have to immediately start drinking in Scotland. It's the rules. Then, uh, I, then I have any to Any Scottish listeners, please let us know your favorite <laughs> places to drink in Scotland. What are the best drinking cities in the world? The best drinking cities? Whatever one I'm in right now. <laughs> um, yeah, seriously, though, right? I mean, you know, there's this we, – we tend to romanticize or – or over-publicize. I'm in LA. You guys are in New York. But guess what? You know, there you can get great drinks. Well, not everywhere. Gary, Indiana. Don't go there. It's total. Anyone listening, to Gary, Indiana, prove us wrong. Tell us where we can get an <laughs> oh, amazing cocktail. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I I think that also speaks to the whole idea when you say when when you you talk about what are the best drinking cities. It depends on really what you want to get out of drinking, right? You know, I mean, there are, you know, I come from a blue collar neighborhood in Philadelphia where you can walk into some of those bars and have the best time of your life. Are you going to get a champagne mojito? Probably not. In fact, they'll beat you up if you ask for a champagne mojito. At Dirty but, Franks, they will. Does Dirty Franks still at exist? Dirty Franks. At Dirty Franks. I think you can still smoke in Dirty Franks. Not, <laughs> so it's just still don't tell Philadelphia, anybody. Dirty Franks. What a classic bar that is. Um, you know, and. And it's going to be interesting to see how the whole thing evolves. You know, when you when craft cocktail explosion happened, you know, ten years ago, and now I think people are starting to ask them in that in in the industry are asking themselves, where are we going now? You know, can we? How many? How much more can we do with these classic cocktails? You're starting to see changes now. You're getting bottled cocktails. You're starting to see '80s cocktails are making a comeback for better or for worse. And I'm interested to see what the expensive bars are going to look like in five years. I don't think they're going to look like uh, 1920 speakeasies. No, anymore. and I think we're going to, we're tired of like steampunk retro. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say, can we please dispense with the bow ties and the <laughs> waxed mustaches? <laughs> can I say, I would answer, if, if you were to ask me the two lesser known or not as widely acknowledged drinking cities where I think the cocktail scene is very impressive are Portland, Oregon, because Jeffrey Morgenthaler is there, and yes. he invented the barrel-aged Negroni, which now is a staple of cocktail lists around the world. Barrel-aging is now a thing. Yeah. It was really down to him, and he deserves a lot of credit. And around him, the alums of his bars have sort of spread out and given Portland a very cool, interesting drinking culture. Anyone in Portland, tell us new places we need to know about. I also think that Sydney is very interesting because Melbourne was always a great drinking city because it was in the state of Victoria and you could open a little cocktail bar very easily. In New South Wales, under Sydney's liquor laws until very recently, a license was so expensive that a bar had to be gigantic to make money. So the craft cocktail world could not take hold. They changed the law to let them open 
little 12 seater bars so a guy can own a bar and like have his regulars and it has transformed Sydney's drinking scene. Grasshopper in the CBD, um, Baxter Inn, which Cameron McKenzie talks about. And I will say Bulletin Place in Sydney, which is right on Bulletin Place, right by the ferries, is one of my top three cocktail bars in the world. So do you think that Cam is on the leading edge of something that's going to kind of blossom there? Oh, Sydney. I mean, Sydney's already... Sydney exploded almost overnight to such a degree that they're now struggling to deal with how many applications there are for small neighborhood bars. It did change the CBD because what it did brilliantly was Sydney's downtown isn't full of residences. It is almost exclusively offices. So it's the perfect place to have nightlife. Yeah. Because once the offices clear out, there's no one to complain about the noise. So it's made the Sydney CBD a sort of it's, it has this Jekyll and Hyde where during the day it's an office and then you go there at night now and it's throbbing with people, but people drinking cocktails. I would add, too, if you talk about cities maybe that are underrated, if just here in the States, uh, Denver, where you've got Sean Kenyon, who Williams and, Gra- uh, Williams and Graham was named the, you know, the best bar in the world at Tales of the Cocktail a couple years ago. And then also San Diego got uh, Eric Castro down there. I mean, there's polite provisions. There's some fantastic bars in San Diego, and it's and both of those cities have the advantage of being really easy to get around in, mm-hmm. uh, which is not a you know that's one of the problems here in L.A. I guess Uber's helped, but one of, you know when you're going to visit a town and you want to go, you know, it L.A. is kind of a bitch in that regard. Yeah. So you, you go, hey, let's go to the varnish and let's go to Copa Dura. Well, it's going to take you two hours to get from down. And that that matters to me, at least when I'm when I'm making a decision on a place to go. Uh, really, it's just L.A. L.A. sucks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, at least there's Uber. That helps. If Should you travel for booze? Yes, but buy Uber. Yes. Well, Uber. listen, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Dan Dunn is the author of American Wino. Check that out. Uh, you heard him talking about it here. And uh, thank you, Mark, for putting this together, as usual. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. And don't forget to visit us at cntraveler.com, where we have plenty of wine, booze, beer coverage, everything you want to know. And uh, visit us at CN Traveler, uh, Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and the Snapchat. And please, as Mark was saying, Correct us if we're wrong about your place. Send us, uh, if you've got a great drinking city, let us know. Tell about us the that. bars we don't know yeah, about. Yeah, where that we should, should we be going? Where should, uh, where should our readers be going? Tell us. Uh, shout your city out. And review us on iTunes. Send us feedback by Twitter. Uh, many folks have been doing that. It's been great. And uh, Dan, how can people reach you? On the Twitter, I'm at, at the imbiber. That's T H E I M B I B E R. You can come to my house. I live in Venice, uh, Walgrove and Palms. It takes Just, way too fucking long to get there, man, even by Uber. <laughs> Yell out my name, Walgrove and Palms area. Uh, I'm on Facebook, and uh, I got Instagram, I think. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, Twitter's good. That's good. Twitter's good. And I'm on, I was going to say, I'm on Twitter at Mark J. Elwood. And I'm at Brad Rick. And that's it. Have a great weekend, everybody. See you guys.